Welcome to What's My Thesis. I am your host, Javier Proenza. Every week, my guests and I share the answers we found to the questions we have. Join us as we explore and expand our worldview through research and ask What's My Thesis. And today, my guest is Danielle Winger. And um, I, that's, that name, I have an impulse to say Danielle because I knew a girl Sorry, in Miami. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that's why I asked to make sure. But uh, speaking of uh, places, where, where are you from originally? Well, that's a good question. Um, so I'm born in Reno, Nevada, um, cool. but I moved, yeah, I moved every two years growing up. Um, okay. My dad ran casinos. So I'm Reno, Las Vegas, Kansas City, New Orleans. I've kind of been everywhere. My God. You just named off like mob cities, which is great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, where are you now? Where do you live now? So I live in a very small town called LaFountain, Indiana. Um, okay. It's northern Indiana. It's about an hour south of Fort Wayne and an hour and a half north of Indianapolis. Okay. Fort Wayne, I have no idea where that, what that is. It's <laughs> northern Indiana. So I'm glad you it's said Indiana. It's almost Michigan. It's almost Michigan, basically. Almost Michigan? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Cool. So it, it's how long have you been in Indiana now? And also, where do you consider like home? Or is, I'm guessing your family somewhere. Maybe that's that's where you consider home or is that uh, like not correct? You know, what's so funny is that I actually wrote my entire undergraduate thesis about what the construct of home means, because I don't consider anywhere home. Okay. Um, so my mom and my brother live in Nashville. My mm-hmm. sister lives in Austin, Texas. My dad and his wife live out in Denver. Uh, if I had to consider myself from anywhere, I think I would say Nashville, um, mostly because that's the longest I lived anywhere as like a childhood home, kind of. Mm-hmm. I moved there when I was 16 and my family, most of them stayed there. My dad just recently moved out of there. That makes um, sense because that's like high school. And, yeah, you know. but it was my third high school. So it's not like I was super you know i didn't i didn't i didn't consider that to be like yeah but that's when you start to i mean i meant it more in terms of like no i'm not like super loyal to my high school either um but i meant it more in terms in terms of like um how like when you're 16 you become like essentially an adult that's when you start to sort of get your shit together for the first time and start to think independently and stuff so it would make sense that happens I mean, for me, maybe, maybe not, but that was only the first wave of that, you know, like I'm saying early bloomer, apparently. No, I'm a late bloomer in other aspects. I just mean it like that's when the first, I don't know, for me, 15 was pretty rough. 14 was pretty rough, you know, like like it was all rough. Really? Uh, I think around 17, (laughs) I started to just chill out and be cool, but Mm -hmm. then I lost it kind of like, um, what's it called? The, um. The wonderful story of Henry Sugar. I don't know the role doll. I know he's problematic now, but oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a, or actually no, I'm thinking of Siddhartha, which is like where he's like a genius kind of present enlightened kid when he's young and everybody's like fascinated by him, but then eventually mm-hmm. he grows up and he has a miserable fucking life, and then like <laughs> essentially the point of the book is that even though he has like. He just becomes a bad person and he gets corrupted by like life. Eventually, he's able to find his way back, essentially. Uh, spoiler alert. 
but so um, so real <laughs> real American story, just all around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, but what you, what's it called? Okay, so do you want to get into your topic? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you asked where I was from because that's such a um, like a a seed of where I start with with any of my paintings. That was what my entire undergraduate and graduate was about was making these paintings about home it's my baby crying in the background just so okay. you know <laughs> it's been a weird day my daughter she's six weeks old and she just had a tongue tie and a lip tie revision today what is that and mean? so it's where they you take them to a dentist and they use a laser to actually cut the part under your tongue and on your lip uh, so that because her so mouth like basically right here and then and then under the tongue yes. that like that little like uh fin that yeah. attaches web yeah mm -hmm. yeah so she's had a she's had a rough day she's tiny and a lot of pain so my husband's oh my actually God. with her and i know but she honestly it, it causes so many issues going forward like she was not gaining weight she was a preemie she wasn't gaining weight so they caused that issue we breastfeed she wasn't able to latch so this was something i mean we had to do it so yeah. it stinks but bad day for her anyway um, so I chose, it's kind of a roundabout, um, loose because there's such a, there's such a depth That's to this idea. Fine. It's a big ask to, to yeah, put together right? a topic. You're fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I chose, um, color psychology okay. because it plays such a huge role in my work. And, right. um, I teach color theory. I've taught it for years. Um, and I teach at a local community college and another small college in Ohio, uh, and teaching color theory, honestly, I felt like, cause I teach non-art majors, so they don't really care that much. You eventually get, you get a student here or there that, you know, really attaches to the information and, you know, get something out of it. But for the most part, I teach nursing majors or education majors, people who are just getting their humanities credits. Mm -hmm. So I've actually felt like I've gotten more out of teaching this course than my students do because I'm constantly inundated with all of this technical information about how color works in art. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, color psychology is used in marketing and in just ways of influencing here and there. We don't realize just how much we are influenced by what we choose to wear, what we choose to eat, how we feel about something. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's several very famous films that you can watch. You say, you know, they're using this like blue and orange complementary color scheme and it's affecting our mood and the way we're reacting to this. And then, you know, you have artists who go through famous periods like Picasso's blue period and you see how color is used to utilize certain emotions. But for me, my work has always been about home, uh, nostalgia, memory. I'm unapologetically sentimental in my work. Um, I refer to myself as a poet painter. Mm -hmm. All of my paintings are actually directly um, titled after parts of poems. And it's okay. usually, it's, I mean, they're very direct. It's usually Sylvia Plath or um, Emily Dickinson or Oscar Wilde. So they're, you know, they're very known poets. Um, and can I, I, listen can to I uh, step in and just so that I have a better context, I actually really have no idea what Sylvia Plath and it writes about like what is her poetry about just so that i have a context oh it's dark it's super dark, dark. I, I, okay yeah. okay yeah and you said uh, emily she, dickinson yeah okay and she writes the my experience of that is that a simon and garfunkel lyric where he's like <laughs> it's really pretentious where he's like saying <laughs> i and i read uh, uh, or 
and you read your Emily Dickinson, and I'm my I'm gonna say Robert Frost oh, because it fits. Oh gosh! Oh gosh! <laughs> <You know? laughs> but so, I was I literally thought about that lyric the other day, and I was like, what the fuck do these people write about? I mean, I know what Robert Frost writes about. <laughs> See, but and that's when artists artists get in these zones, and I find myself in like normal conversations where I'll like make a pun, and someone's <laughs> like, I don't get it. I'm like, you know, like. Dickinson like no I don't know but I'm like 90% of other people's conversations I have I don't understand movie references yeah yeah, I haven't seen some of the biggest some of like the like like ultimate movies you know like I was 25 when I first saw what is that kids baseball movie Sandlot Oh, I mean, that's like, that's, that one's, I, I'm not, I, 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 you get a pass on that. Cause I don't think that that's like that seminal a movie or like that, even that classic, like it's all right. What's, what's the, um, starts with a G. It's the, like a boy, like a boy, a kid, it's like, it's a kid movie, but it's the, uh, the Goonies that too. I was that same night. I saw oh. that for the first time. Okay. That I'm one is, that one is like a little it. bit more shocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for my generation, I felt like people looked at me yeah. like I had three heads that I hadn't seen this. No, that that know? one is like, what what kind of parents did you have? Is the question that the the, the subtle they question? They ran casinos. <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> they're not into into kids movies. Um, no, so what not. were you watching, really Godfather? Were- <laughs> I lived Godfather. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, I, I could have just gone with Casino, which is the actual more relevant movie. But yeah, that's even, true. Even that one seems a little because I, I watched Godfather when I was a kid. I think Casino's a little bit like it's heavy, bro. <laughs> yeah, the, mm-hmm. the pen stabbings and all of that. I didn't. I yeah. didn't watch Goodfellas until later. But anyway, let's get back to uh, color psychology. I mean, it's not that it's not related, but. I won't make the reach and like do all the effort to connect what we were just talking about in this. Cause it's, yeah, know. yeah. <laughs> Let's just get back to it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, when I first started painting, gosh, I was really late to painting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 23 before I what? ever, huh? I mean, it's not like you're a gymnast, you know, <laughs> like... I was a gymnast for 12 years actually. <laughs> and I quit. I Nailed quit it. the year that, Year that Dominique Mociano made it to the Olympics at 14. Uh-huh. I think I was 15. And I was like, shit, like I'm never going to make it. So wow. I'm just going to quit. So I okay. just quit. I think <laughs> painting is a little bit like more flexible. I, 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 when, oh, yeah. you said, when you said 23, I was like, what? That's like not well, that. Well, because yet. I mean, most that painters old. are like, oh, I knew I was going to be a painter since I was like three years old. Oh, well, fuck like, painters then. You go, to, <laughs> you go to art school and they're all like, you've never painted before. I've been painting since I was eight. Oh, yeah. I'm like, okay, art, I was school people, <laughs> art school is not a real world. <laughs> it's not a real world. It really isn't. No. Yeah. So when I came in, I mean, honestly, like I came in like three weeks and I was like, I want to get my MFA. And people were like, <laughs> You don't even have a BFA because I went to yeah. school for fashion design. Like I didn't go to school for painting. I mean, that's I like in... close enough, right? Like it's design at least. It is. I actually hate sewing too. Yeah. So that was never going to work out. And it's 3D. It's like, it's, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think that that's that, that, that preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard so people get any... MFAs with less relevant, uh, to art field uh, B, uh, oh B, yeah uh, BAs, yeah right? but it usually so. makes them more interesting you know I mean I I never really incorporated the textile I would say color theory stayed very strong in the work post fashion design because that was also yeah. a really big part of 
trend forecasting and things like that was understanding color theory. Oh, okay. Yeah. You mentioned that that is like, cause I, that was one of the things that I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, the, uh, the fact that it's used by ad agencies, you know, like oh, yeah. Yeah. all of that is like, it's, it's interesting. Um, since we're talking about it, like I, you know, I think that like, there's a lot of stuff where I don't know if now people are just more savvy about images cause or, like, or if it's like, a both things at the same time where people are both aware of images but then also deeply affected by like instagram and whatnot even though oh, they know how how it's not reality right like um mm -hmm. so it's crazy because when i was in school like they they taught us basically that like a photograph is not the thing and it's like a it's it's not that like i mean it's not like um, mind blowing, but it is an important detail in in, in how you uh, phrase your your discussions about things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, right? Like, um, you sort of have to acknowledge the photograph as an object before you start talking about its content. So, so it's interesting to sort of like just think about how that is also a thing that is manipulative that can be used against you. That you're like, I, I'm not thinking about like how are these colors affecting me. <laughs> and making me want to buy this thing. You say that because you're talking about like the simulacra yeah. where, and then the mnemic image, the two things where it's like where, when something becomes an image of a thing, like think about George Washington on the dollar bill. That's who we see as George Washington. But yeah. we also know that that looks very little to what he actually looked like. That's what he wanted to be drawn as, but he actually yeah. was yeah. smaller. He had a lot of acne. So he was pockmarked. You know, all these these like these things that he didn't want to be remembered as. So now he is what he is as a statue. So that's, and that you know, right there is so crazy too. Just like how you how you would be like, I don't want I, I want to erase this part for like that's not a power we've ever had, right? I've mm -hmm. always had to deal with how I look in photographs. Had that power. I mean, artists. There, are, there was there's a, there's a part that I teach you in my color theory, and I I can't remember what. Um, I mean, it happened all throughout history, but basically they would send artists out to um, paint portraits of women who were going to be prospective wives mm -hmm. um, because they, if they had their own artists send things, they were finding that these portraits that came in looked nothing like the women when they actually came to marry. So, I mean, the artists have always had that power, though. I mean, pay them enough money, they'll make you taller, they'll make you thinner, they'll make you younger. And so many of these very historic portraits we look at look nothing like, especially the men, look nothing yeah. like these men. They just, like, <laughs> nice <around>. dig there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. That's what no, I mean. it's true because they're the ones that have the money back then, right? <laughs> it's like you had to do something really fancy to be a, a female who got a portrait. But <laughs> No, that's what I'm saying. Like they, they're the ones that had the cash because <laughs> yeah, we talked yeah. over each other. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's wild. But but even those are those are things that like, you know, like those that that's an example of something that I just don't think about because I don't study painting. Right. Or mm -hmm. I, I and, and and so like, I mean, that's something that doesn't surprise me. And maybe I learned it at some point and I've forgotten the fact. But to hear it again, it's not like it's not mind blowing. But at the thing that is mind blowing is the idea is when you were talking about George Washington, the idea of like essentially photoshopping yourself for, for posterity right yeah. whereas like i get like that that's still a thing 
were were you know and and that is sort of the th- the surreal part of Instagram that we that I was like referencing earlier but at the same time I think that like I don't know I don't think that those images are being painted for their or the taken for their legacy or maybe they are maybe people are aware of their legacy cuz people are very aware of the brand I don't know it's just an interesting thing to, I mean, to think about cuz I've never they were What's that Historically, I think they were. Historically, I think. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, con- con- I mean, contemporarily, do the people, do people, yeah, do people, is it the same thing? Like, because I was going to say, like, oh, people show their pictures pockmarked, but then I'm like, no, but there's a whole subset of people that don't. It's just an interesting thing to consider. Like, yeah. but I'm thinking more in the, in our generation where, like, you're taking, dealing with cameras that, like, we didn't really have access to Photoshop in our generation, right? So, like, what you look like is what you look like, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, so from that context, that's crazy to me, you know? But, yeah. but then it's also crazy to think that there's a generation that is used to thinking of themselves as like, oh, I can just, like, get that, you know, fix well, that little thing. When you, when you bring up, like, Instagram and you talk about the way people are, people don't even realize they're using color theory when they are using those apps, like the mm. filters on Instagram are literally just harmonizing colors. So oh, okay. you have like a blue overlay or a green overlay and it will give an orange or a green underlay to it. So you're just harmonizing two complementary colors to make it flashy and to basically smooth the whole thing out. But you're yeah. using color and some people go towards, you know, a warmer filter or a cooler filter. And that's where, I, where it's been in those situations where color theory plays into it because who you are as a person is how you're going to gravitate towards certain things because mm. you want a mood of a, of a photo. You want it to portray some sort of feeling. Are you feeling yeah. sexy? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling flirty? I mean, all these things and you, each person associates a different color to those things. And so you, there's a lot going into those decisions that, you know, they're subconscious, but as an artist, you know, you can, uh, for me, I'm a very intuitive person. So I can pick up on those things personality wise with somebody if that they're, mm. Just the way they choose colors, the way they portray themselves through color. So what would you say about me and my room? Because there's definitely some color in here. I mean, I have <laughs> this blue thing <laughs> at the door back here. I'm like, is it laying over the door? Or is it behind the door? Is it- <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those uh, uh, um, planetarium style like uh, projector ah, lights that's projecting on the wall. My kids would love <laughs> and then there's a little uh purple over here in the corner and yeah, then yeah, and the green, and right green. Your head. Yeah, yeah just the, just to cover up this atrocious looking furnace that sits behind me <laughs> <laughs> or it's a radiator that is just like it's crazy yeah. but yeah that's interesting so like do you uh, uh, is it is it does it get formulaic is there like a way that you can be like well like you know orange makes you sort of tend to feel these kinds of things you associate these kinds of things with it like in terms of i mean i know you're not in advertising even though you referenced it so is there from your design background specifically is there any anything there that like or am i not thinking about color correctly it color psychology correctly that's right there's that's definitely there i mean so for me with color i actually when i got i got obsessive with color okay because um i had a very hard time seeing value as a painter in the very beginning okay and so i overcompensated that by using a bunch of colors to give warm and cool as ways to talk about value 
Uh-huh. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it didn't give that like hard punch of like this person understands light. You know, there was no like John Singer Sargent to it. It was like this girl uses a lot of color to overcompensate. Any yeah. any good painter could look at my work and see that that's what I was doing, okay. or at least that's how I felt about it. So I became super obsessive with painters who really understood light and how to, you know, ta- how to use color very minimally, but very um, powerfully at the same time. So like uh, who? Uh, Hudson uh, River uh, School actually, Painters? I actually looked at more like contemporary pa- painters like Jeremy oh, okay. And his work is incredible. It is the way he understands light, the way that he, and Sophie Trependahl, she does it in a very kind of like muted down Matisse kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really looking at my contemporaries and how they were using color. Um, so I kind of, I forced myself to this place where I would only use very um, restricted color schemes, um, just a blue and orange. And I really do gravitate towards complementaries because I still enjoy that kind of, powerful color relationship where a complementary color scheme is going to be the most powerful color scheme. And that's the colors that are across the, um, the color wheel from each other. So yeah, red so and like, green, blue and orange, purple, yellow, and you can immediately stop and associate those things with Christmas, Mardi Gras. I think there's like an Alabama football team, Auburn or a, I don't even, I, I don't do sports, but one of them has orange and orange and blue. <laughs> My husband would kill me because he's all about sports and I'm just... I love how you don't do sports encompasses like you don't play sports, you don't don't watch them, you don't, you don't, you're not aware of them. (laughs) I live in Indiana. I'm very aware of them. It's like all people have to do around here is like watch sports. So that's all they do. Everything's like around sports, the Colts and the Pacers. My husband's a Purdue fan. Pacers? Oh, Oh, the basketball team. The basketball team. Yeah. I think about all these sports teams in colors. So it's like the second you tell me what the, 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 the team what, is, I think of like what their mascot is. What is, uh, okay, let's do What's a fun what? quiz. What's, because uh, oh. since this is the only sports trivia we care about. No, I mean, I used to be, I used to be really into sports, uh, especially when I was younger. As, uh, like it was part of my assimilation process. So I got, re- and Miami at the time was getting like every expansion team. They had the Heat already. And they had the Dolphins already. But there's this a rich millionaire, Wayne Heisenga, who was the uh, person that brought us Blockbuster Music. Do you remember wow. Blockbuster Music? I don't, no. Oh, Blockbuster Music was the place where you could go and listen to CDs before you bought them. And uh, it went under. <laughs> what year so, was this? Huh? What year was this? Uh, 90s, yeah. And then okay. so so then uh, Miami got the um, Marlins and then the Panthers. So I got completely sucked in. I was like a multi-sport fan. Marlins like teal and purple. Uh, is it purple? Huh. That's a good. I I maybe I actually don't know. All right. So Marlins. What about Dolphins? I think Dolphins is uh, teal and orange, or like a like a blue and orange, but tealish. All right. Yeah, it's actually just kind of teal, and there's not really purple for the Marlins. Uh, it's like it's teal and black essentially, and then uh, yeah, and then I think the Dolphins are right. All right, let's see. Uh, well, I don't actually know enough teams to just name them off, but I did want to know what what colors are the Pacers? Uh, they're a gold and a navy blue. And a navy blue. Let's just let the artist listener decide if it's right or wrong so i don't have to like research it okay and then um miami heat 
Oh, I've actually been to a Miami Heat game before, before too. I don't know. I want to go with orange. Orange and black. Halloween. It's no, it's, yeah, yeah, or maybe like red too somewhere in there. I actually went and, when Shaq played for them, right? Because I went and yeah, I saw yeah. Shaq on the court. I think he was playing for that team. Okay. Yeah, yeah he was definitely playing for that team because he used to play for the, the Magic. professional basketball game I've ever been to. It's fun though, right? Like when you're yeah, there, it's going. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not like anti-sports. It's just like, it's a lot of rules and a lot of things to understand. And I'm yeah. someone's like, I don't want to watch something I don't understand. And so I'm yeah. not, I'm going to, I'm going to ask all the questions. If you, you know get me to, yeah, if you get me, yeah, no, I, I could see, I'm also, uh, I would also be that person in a space where I was like, not aware of what's going oh, on. Yeah. So oh, I could know, totally, I could poetry, basketball is poetry. <laughs> I'm like, is it though? Like, is, is it actually poetry? It is also really weird that it's like a bunch of. around a lot, so. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's just re- weird that it's like so many people that couldn't do possibly do this, putting pressure on people that can, and then getting yes. angry at them that yes. they, when they don't. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, you're mad at these people for playing a game you could never possibly play. <laughs> Actually, I think Serena Williams just laid it down in a in an interview. I forget, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it, she was basically like, "Yeah, whenever people write mean things about me, I just remember that none of these people could play." <laughs> anywhere near as good like six months pregnant too she's like not only yeah, do yeah I- exactly <laughs> so i don't know it, that to me that's hilarious anyway that concludes our sports segment of uh, what's my thesis we can get back into the art for everybody that was pulling their hairs out yeah. um, <laughs> all right so okay i'm trying to think so like when i was a baby i was really into this color behind me green right like mm-hmm. Uh, my parents just tell me that I, because like they, I mean, it was just like what I gravitated towards. Like, uh, I literally had a, took a bite out of, uh, a foam football that was American football that was, um, green and it like passed through me, you know, it's still there. No, I hope not. It's in my colon. (laughs) That's my downfall. Like if I die right now, (laughs) what's that? actually growing as a tumor now uh-huh. oh let's not let's not play with fate <laughs> you get to that's a that's a very much our age thing when i was like younger i was like yeah fuck fuck fate <laughs> yeah now you're like yeah let's not go there <laughs> no, i don't need to fuck with uh, however whatever however this thing works but yeah so i mean i was obsessed with it and and I mean I'm still very much a green person. I think uh, there's a lot of colors. I think that as I've grown older, there's things that I don't like in green, which is a surprising thing. Like I'm not always a, a fan of the color of the greens that they choose for cars. Even though I used to have a green car, I had a 1970 mm-hmm. Dodge Dart, which kind of looked like a Barracuda, but it was nowhere near as like dope. It, I mean, it was still dope, but it was not not a muscle car. Um, and, and so that car was cool. It was it had this like avocado color to it. So we called it, or I called it the lawn dart, because it, 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 it was it spent. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, there's it, the color's interesting to me because I think my tastes in it have changed. I wonder if that has 
do you think that has to do like because you were talking about personality i i still love green i do acknowledge that there's maybe more shades of blue more hues of blue that i like than there's like definitely a lot of ugly greens whereas i i but then you'll find yourself gravitating towards an ugly green i mean color is seasonal like it it is anything else and um so for me i mean Color psychology in my work um, functions as it's very intuitive. I don't go into a painting and say, I'm going to make this all in blues. I mean, I do a lot of sketching. I typically know if I'm going to go for a nocturnal scene or a day scene. Um, Recently, I've been very much into the nocturnal scenes. And I think because they're, they're such a mood to a night painting that it's hard to capture in a day painting. I mean, And also day paintings are really happy. And I think especially, you know, since COVID, I felt very moody and doing a lot of night paintings was a way that I, you know, worked through that. Strictly on a color sense, what's interesting about a night painting is that you're going from um, vivid, vital colors, uh, vibrant colors to to like darkness where it's Mm -hmm. like everything is graying. So... It's it, it, I can see that being also just like technically a different process experience. Oh, yeah. Where you're like mixing a lot of muddy or like, you know, or darker uh, uh, tinted stuff where it, it um, I can imagine like the other day I was really upset and I was just I started playing my guitar. I can imagine and it made me feel better. You know, like I can imagine those little things like so, sometime it can be sometimes it can possibly be validating maybe to sort of like dwell on those colors and then now you're like yeah (laughs) exactly and i'm like listening to damien rice in my ear and i'm like (laughs) who's damien rice what does he talk about what no music oh okay (laughs) oh okay i don't know i i don't even know who mac demarco is And there we go. <laughs> I'm stuck. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> no, I'm not you know who be- Dominic Fike? I think that's the most contemporary person that I, I listen to that's in the pop genre. Oh, Dom- Damien Rice is not contemporary. He's oh, like, okay. he's like the emo stages of like the early 2000s. I mean, oh, okay. he's around, but he's no, the, but he my like 2000 ca- professional and like, like, Jack oh, Death Cat. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's in that like realm of like he's on Hollister lists, you know? He's definitely like the yeah, where you yeah. Can- <laughs> yeah, I think in the early aughts, uh, because of where I was living in t- I was listening to a lot more like Creed style, like radio okay. rock. And it yeah. was terrible, but I still have my like I love that song one. One. <laughs> be best friends because like he's always just listening to like terrible rock and roll and he's like your movie your music's depressing <laughs> well it's just because it was a habit that like i just was li- used to listening to fm radio and there were no pod ca- pod uh anything you know like you couldn't you didn't have streaming music at the time oh, yeah. so yeah. it was very much of the moment and i was very frustrated with it but it was like third eye blind and and like the, you know i i don't hate the some of that music now i like don't even ironically appreciate it i was like no those songs like i i i bonded with them and like when they came on at the time it may have been like ironic because creed is so creed but like i like that song like legit it 
You put it on. It's like the the. It like it builds up and then you're like. Makes you want to go running or something. Get your adrenaline out. Well, it makes me think of being in a car, but rolling hills. So yeah, it's similar. You know, similar vibe. But yeah, like and you know, I have no like regrets for saying for like liking it or even stating that publicly because. <laughs> you're not saying rascal flats you're saying creed you know so <laughs> i'm into like a lot of different shit but like i can i can indulge in some of the stuff that like is cringe you know like yeah, creed is yeah. definitely cringe yeah yes definitely <laughs> i'm the laziest music listener because i just go to pandora radio and i put in like a song or a band that i do like and i let yeah. them make the whole playlist i don't even know half the crap i listen to oh really Sometimes you just know you're, you're just like <laughs> Billie Eilish. I was like, who's this person? And like, <laughs> like, there was a couple songs that I really liked. And I was like, who am I listening to? And I was like, that's why everyone likes her because she's yeah. like popping up on my playlist. Yeah, she's cool. It's interesting w- w- with her. I like, especially she, she actually has the, she had the green hair for a while. Mm-hmm. And like, but with the roots. And that it, was the green that you did like or you didn't like? No, I, I mean, I like, I, I, like I say, I say there's ugly greens. I don't mean that I hate green. Like I'm, there's no green that I'm like, no, like for context, like, yeah, I'll, I'll reject it because that's part of the art process. Right. Like yeah. I would, I, you know, uh, I wouldn't, you know, like, I, I mean, my point is that there's a lot of ugly green guitars that I've seen. Right. Like, you know, (laughs) just since I just looked at the screen and saw the guitars behind me. Right. Like there there's a lot of them that and I think that that I I I just bought this guitar here. Let me show you my guitar so you guys can see it's called Miami Blue for if you're listening at home. (laughs) All right. So I have it's it's not going to come across that well on the video. If you this guitar is all over the place right now, if you want to look for the American Pro. What's that? You're calling that a green? No, this is a blue. Oh, okay. In the process, but that's my point. In the process of buying this guitar, I ended up with a, with, this is an American version and there was a Mexican version. There was no color that I really liked. And this color was enough to me, for me to be like, you know what, man, I've been playing guitar long enough. I'm, I'm 41. Like, when am I going to buy a guitar that is like <laughs> really worthy of the time? Right now, I'm buy a guitar. <laughs> but, but what's it called? Like, I'll just put it back here for people to, to be able to appreciate the color. The process of buying it, there were definitely guitar. I had another blue guitar that I was like, this one doesn't feel like it's mine, you know? Like, and, and the idea of the color being important in the process of like, because it's the same shape as the other guitar that I had, I had another guitar, exactly the same shape, uh, like half the price, right? Because it was made in Mexico instead of made in America. And so the, um, the impact that the color had just being like, even though it was green, it wasn't like, and I never thought I would be like, and it wasn't an ugly green guitar. It was just not, it just didn't feel like my guitar. This feels like my guitar. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's something about also the branding of the color. Cause it's not just blue, it's Miami blue and it is a very Miami blue. It's like, kind of like that typical, like it's not pastel. It's a little bit more vibrant than pastel. It's not as muted as a pastel, but it's like blue. 
Yeah, it's oh, it's like tur- turquoisey. It's bordering yeah. on turquoisey, you mm-hmm. know. And it actually kind of matches the Beastie Boys on my T-shirt, yeah. right now, <laughs> which I just noticed. But yeah. uh, no it's like on your door behind you. <laughs> <laughs> we're totally like. I've never in this uh, room just been like so aware of all the colors that I'm experiencing. <laughs> but 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 so yeah, that is that's like like that that sort of validates what you're talking about because there's something about how this color of blue makes me feel and it also the branding of it being Miami blue. I grew up in Miami. You know, I that's where I went to high school. That's kind of one of the places that I think of as home. Um all of those things, not just the color, but the name of the color and the na- and the fact that the name mm-hmm. represented a color that was, you know, like they could have called it something else, but it is accurate. Like it's not uh, inaccurate to call that Miami blue. That is a very Miami blue. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for me, like all of those little things just built it, like put together, became this like a Canadian blue or a Michigan blue. Exactly. Yeah. Michigan blue is completely different in my head. Right. Like that's not a Miami blue, (laughs) but, but yeah. So, so for, for me, this was like, this, this sort of makes, makes this conversation make sense for me because I did it on such an intuitive level, but now like, it's like I'm in third in art, in color therapy right now. And I'm like, Hey, I went through this process with these colors and this is what I when felt. I was, and you're like, I need a green ball. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I dreamt yeah. just pitch blue. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, my color, I, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of thought and also not a lot of thought goes into the way I approach color and painting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, if I say I'm going to make a blue, I will spend a good 30 minutes mixing the perfect blue just for that painting. And how I can't much, go ahead. Huh? I was just going to say how much, how much do you lay out of each blue, but finish what your, your thought. Cause I'm like, oh, I, I never know I'm how a, much I'm a disgusting painter. Like most people have like a clean palette and I'm like shoveling up like dry, crusty shit and just like make it like reactivating it and like making it happen because I like the blue I used two weeks ago and I'm going to, I'm an oil painter. So it sticks there for a while and stays semi, you know, flexible and wet it's like um, hard on the outside and soft on the inside, right? It's like you're uh, on the top too, and you're like yeah. peeling back stuff, you know, to get to the good stuff. Always <laughs> <laughs> well, just like, I mean, my 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 whole studio is just disgusting. And so, <laughs> and like when I like most people like they show like mixing paint on the smooth surface. It's like crunch, 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 crunch. As I like pull <laughs> the the mixture on top of all these like flat, like crusty, dried piles of paint. It's got matte fleck inside of the paint because it's got like well, other people. I would love to say it's because I'm frugal, but like it's that's not why. I'm just lazy, you know. So it's like yes, like the wax They're paper. Not I mutually use is exclusive. <laughs> I'm both. I'm frugal. And disgusting. <laughs> but I do. I spend a lot of time, and I. So when I talked about you know not being able to see color or value. I've actually never really been able to see purple very well. Um, I always see it as blue. It's like a semi-colored, like blind part of myself. <laughs> for I mean, for when most people look at my work, they talk about how color is so important for someone who's slightly colorblind and has a really hard time seeing value. 
So wait, so are you actually colorblind? Is that or or you just because I I think that there's like a legit I think in the people in the you know the philosophical thing of like or whatever it's not philosophical but like the thing that you realize when you're a kid where you're like hey everybody sees a different color when they see the same thing right like i definitely have noticed that purple and blue is like one of the ones that yeah. every time every time i am like it's it's it, that's that that that's there's a disagreement on a color it's going to be in that in that like dividing line between oh, purple and blue, green, I think that's blue and green and purple and blue. I, and I feel I, like I feel like blue encompasses so much that it like bleeds itself into the green and the purple area, and depending on who you are. But for me, I mean, something has to be blatantly purple for it to be considered purple to me. It needs yeah. to be like very violet, or else yeah. it's just blue. Yeah, that's interesting. I but I think that my but my th- theory has always been that that's a semantic thing. I I yeah. I yeah, I I think that that's like just people like it's just a matter of where you but that's really interesting there right there just to think about it. And I think and and when you brought up the the green and blue, I think that blue green is more widely accepted as a terminology whereas like yeah. purple blue and blue purple is yeah, so like cumbersome people just see or red orange people see red or orange yeah but, like that no, no no but i'm saying like as no the blue green as like like you know like how when you start to learn the color wheel you start thinking of like the you know like you start calling that segment that is in between blue and green the blue green mm-hmm. segment right like whereas mm-hmm. I think that, like, that is more intuitively, like, you know, that's, like, a blue-green, I think, is a cultural thing. Whereas, like, because from language perspective, to say purple-blue or blue-purple is, like, a little weird. I think that that is maybe where that that semantic thing comes, where it's, like, well, it's either purple or blue. You know, like you were saying. What's interesting about this is it also comes up when you're talking about additive versus subtractive theory, which is pigment theory versus light theory. So what yeah. you see on your computer, you know, or what you print out is different than what you paint. So your printer works off CMYK or, mm. but if you're painting, you're, wor- you're working off um, RGB. And so it's, it's, it's very different. Um, I'm trying RBY. to remember my textbooks. How is it? So it, with the, um, with a CMYK, you put all of them together and what do you get? You get black? So or you, you get have white, green, magenta, yellow, and keys, and so keys is your black, white is okay. just your paper. Okay. Um, cyan is your blue, yellow is your yellow, magenta is your red. But magenta is very a very purple red. Versus if you're working in paint, then you're using like a true red. And but wait, so what, what makes one subtractive? Maybe I'm confusing synthesis like oh, synth- yeah, synthesis. No. Go so ahead. Add- so you have subtractive theory and you have additive theory. Basically, when you're looking at like if you go if you watch a theater production and you have the three lights that overlay and there's white on the bottom, mm-hmm. that's one that's that's light theory. And then you have um, subtractive theory is basically just um, uh, like all of the colors absorbing into one thing. So mm-hmm. white basically reflects everything. Black oh, absorbs okay. everything. Okay, and so. It's it's basically natural light versus first non-natural light. 
as I've said before, the last time the, the the place where I stopped with photography was when I had to start using uh, CMYK and uh, having color profiles on my monitors that matched my printers, and I was just like, "This doesn't feel oh, like art." <laughs> no, I mean, I teach color theory, and it's you know, it it's not. I, I don't teach well to digital students because. I've never taken photography, yeah, photography. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand all of the digital nature of it. I can, I can tell you, you know, kind of robotically how it works. Um, I understand pigment theory as a painter because I, that's what I do. So yeah. I can tell you how your computer screen works, but I don't really understand it. I mean, no, I just, it was so frustrating, but I anyway. It's like, it, it's like, I didn't want to be this kind of nerd, you know? No, 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 no exactly. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, you know, for, for me with color, I approached it from this kind of very overwhelming place of, I don't understand it. I can't make it do what I want it to do. So I started painting in these really kind of limited color schemes where I would say, and I always start my backgrounds with um, a red and orange or a hot pink. Mm -hmm. And then I use the complementary color to paint on top of that. And so if you look at my paintings, you'll see a lot of reds kind of popping through that kind of like, it, it brings like a hotness to the painting. Uh, because what I really- What do the complementary colors do? When you put them on top, um, are you graying them or are you just making the other one pop or both? No, so I just on my canvas and then I use acrylic paint and I do a one base of red paint. I let it dry. And then when I go in with my green, I'm just painting on top of that red and that oh, red okay. is through in places. Yeah. So, so it's, so it's, you're not, you're not mixing the green and the red. Mm -mm. No, cause that would make brown. You would just, if you, if you mix complementary colors, you just get brown. Or well, to, to, to varying okay. degrees, right? If you put, if you have like a lot of red and you put just a touch of green, then you get it dulled down. So then you have like that atmospheric distance thing. Yeah, I know yeah. some painting lady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and those are actually called your chromatic grays. If you oh. mix a gray in complementary colors versus using a black and white, and I'll tell you, I don't. I never use black. I don't even know if I own a tube of black paints. That's that's because, how I was taught too. Yeah, because yeah. that would be a tint, right? Down. It just muddies everything up. And there's so much, there's so many color relationships. But for me, you know, I have found that it doesn't really matter what I paint. I mean, I'm painting, I'm painting a landscape scene always. It's always going to be trees and some, usually some water. I typically have, you know, a, a pretty median uh, horizon line and there's always a sun or a moon there. It, the color speaks to the scene more than the scene itself. And mm. I have found that color is, the, is like the strongest force of my paintings because I'm painting about memory, nostalgia, belonging, home. You know, I'm very sentimental, which a lot of, you know, contemporary painters, they're just like when it comes to sentimental because that's just not what's in right now. And it's probably yeah. why I have like a stack this high of rejection letters. But I just, you know, I... I, that's who I am as a painter. And I can't, you know, I have found that when I push to be even more sentimental, that's when the work is actually very um, successful. If I'm toning myself down to try and fit some sort of a trend or something, it, you know, the work feels fake. It feels fraud. You can smell it from a mile away. So, yeah. 
That's but, you're actually the first person I've been doing this show for like a hundred episodes, and you're the first person that talks about how you that that's the first time that sentiment has been expressed, and I relate to that greatly. Like where awesome. where. You, the idea of like when you just the idea when you're fraudulent, like when you when you know oh, that the, that it's that it's I don't know, like that that was nice. That was that was interesting because I mean, it, not that people don't think about it. It's just the first time that it's come up, and, and it's a really interesting thought. Expand well, on it. I mean, I landscape painting is a it's a tough place to be as an artist because. You know, historically, it just has this huge, you know, um, this huge reputation as being a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, and, you know, many people see it as, you know, very one dimensional as, you know, there's there's not a lot of places to go with it. And the places it has gone have already gone. You know, you've got Charles Birchfield, you've got Peter Doig, you know. So and for me as a female, well, as, painter, how do how do they represent stuff? Sorry. Oh, you know, they, they branched away from landscape painting being something that just documented, you know, historically painters documented things as a way to document them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then the camera comes along and artists come in and they start, it frees artists to represent their natural world, however they want. That natural world has been represented abstractly it's been surrealist it's been sublime it's been all of these things and so landscape painters now have a real obstacle to create paintings that haven't already been made before mm-hmm. but especially this drives me nuts um you know i get compared to peter doig all the time and i actually i love his work who doesn't i mean everyone loves peter doig's work but everyone it's like that knows who he is <laughs> who he is no. Love it. I love it. <laughs> I mean, almost every review is like, oh, it's reminiscent of Doig's work. He's still alive. I'm like, it's not reminiscent. <laughs> He's still painting. Don't worry. That's that's their point of reference. My bro- <laughs> yeah. But you it's know. like a girl can't paint a canoe around here without getting here <laughs> Doig. I'm like, men have been doing it forever. You come in and you're like, pine trees are like, it's Doig. I'm like, no. <laughs> Painting so, so phallic. <laughs> no, I don't know if that's his thing, but <laughs> none of my work is phallic though at all. It's no, no, just... I, I know. I've seen your work. I'm just making a joke, like of like, I'm just taking it to the to the full extent oh, of the, of the patriarchal the... attitude there. But this is a conversation I'll have with my dad. I'm like, I'm just so tired of be calling Doig, and he's like, What is she talking about? <laughs> Going <laughs> <laughs> well, don't know what you're talking about yeah um, but i mean no offense to his work love his work but it's you know it's it, landscape painters i just feel like you know there are these staples there's these pillars of and they're typically male who have you know historically in art men have been you know the forefront of all of the pillars of art and yeah. so you come in as a painter and it's you're trying to for me i basically just said i don't care if it looks like joy maybe we're painting from the same place because mm. we're in this whole new era of art where school of thought no longer holds any value. Uh, you know, up until really the, I'd say the 50s and 60s, you know, you you did subscribe to a school of thought. You were a modernist, you were a constructionist, you were all these things. And you were supposed to be working together in this collective thought. And now it's like, we've all gone rogue. And yeah. you can't, you know, if, if you you kind of walk this line of you need to kind of make nod to your contemporaries without actually being like them because then you're 
conservatives. And I live, you know, out in the middle of the woods in Indiana. So I just paint what I paint, what I paint. And if it gets called doing, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I will say. No, I feel ahead. like you I honed say? in. I would say I feel like, I've, you know, when it comes to the color aspect of my work, I, I find if I think about something too long, it's bad. And so I just go into the studio and I think I'm going to make this night painting. It's going to be blue. And it is completely intuitive from start to finish. I typically finish a painting in one sitting. Almost all my paintings, unless they're big, are done in a sitting. Okay, that is something I really appreciate, and especially because I don't relate to it. Because you just said the longer I think of something, the worse it is. (laughs) And, And I love that. I have no idea what you're talking about, but no, no, I do. I do. I told you, but, but that is, um, that is maybe where like I could learn some, or, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. Like there's something, there's a, there's a balance there, but like that, that triggered an excitement in me just to hear that. Like, is like, cause I was like, that was like, that is like the most counterintuitive thing I've heard. But just for my practice, that this is a personal reaction that I'm not, I'm not uh, the authority on that. Play it like for imposter syndrome, which is yeah. like so real for anyone in any art field, you've got this imposter syndrome. So if you go in and you're not thinking, then is it really you making it? Like, can you like, have that, you know, that revulsion to your own work? Cause I mean, many times I look at pain, I'm like, I mean, you have like that full body feeling of like, this is terrible. Yeah. And I mean, when I paint too, I mean, do when you look at something, do you ever blur your eyes? Yeah. Yeah. You so that's how a lot of people can't do that. They, they don't know how to completely blur their eyes while paint, while doing anything or reading. I was really good at those magic eye posters from the nineties yeah. that you yeah. obviously were into. Cause yeah. you're from oh, it trains you, it trains you well. <laughs> so I actually automatically paint blurred eyed. I do it on purpose. And yeah. it's like, so I'm just, well, isn't surprised. that kind of how you're supposed to? Sorry. Huh? You, you, you said something and I didn't hear it. Oh, I was saying I'm just as surprised as anyone else. When I finally <laughs> like, zoom into it i'm like oh <laughs> yeah isn't that how you're supposed to paint though like isn't that like i don't know i have no idea i i think that like i don't know i have i okay i'm literally looking at a painting right now i'm not gonna pull it off the wall and pull, hold it because it's like <laughs> drilled in <laughs> no it's not like my guitar that's on a hook but um there's a painting that I have that I used to think was unfinished, and it is still it's clearly unfinished. But it it's workable because what I was taught was to like paint it like it's a Polaroid picture developing instead of like a printer printing out something, right? So that to me that totally makes sense, and it seems incredibly intuitive, right? Yeah. Especially like uh, it, this is in particular it's a <clears throat> a plein air painting. <laughs> Excuse me excuse me, excuse me, of my view from my apartment in Florence. Right, <laughs> My view from my apartment in Florence. Yeah, but, but anyway, pretension aside, like, I mean, I, there, okay, there really was a point where I was thinking about painting as, like, being the thing, and I, I, I kind of had a knack for it, but... 
for me, it just wasn't the thing that I wanted to like spend time because I knew how much time it would take. Right. Like, and I already draw, I already know how to draw so I can sort of express those things with those tools. But there is that even as somebody who draws, like, especially if I'm drawing linear without pencils, right. Or like, like when it's just ink on paper, it's a completely different process. It's almost impossible. You can lay out your drawing and then fill it up, but the tonality and the value side, which you say you're not that good at, but I can't draw like, no, no, I totally understand that. But I'm saying like, but it, but that, that's, I mean, I, that is essentially is my point. Like, right. Like it's like, it's, it's a completely different approach. So I can, I can see how you would say that people can't blur their eyes but Mm -hmm. you know like for the difference between that and what I'm comfortable like for me what was frustrating about painting was the inability to like or at least at that point at uh, early on to make the same kind of mark that I would make with a pen which I have a lot of control with a with a pen or with a you know or like with a you know whatever whatever ink medium that uh, tool that you have like a quill mm-hmm. or something like that right whereas with a brush the brush gives the canvas gives there's a lot of elements that are kind of uh, from a tactile sense you, you have to make a leap and then yeah, yeah. and then you but then but then going back to the topic you add the fucking color and you said earlier you spent 30 minutes (laughs) well because because i'm using i mean if you look at my paintings it's like it's blue there and then there's very subtle like you know there's certain things to understand about color every color has a warm and a cool even your cool color so there's a warm blue there is a cool blue yes and so if i'm trying to depict a wintry night and you'll see my, my, my scenes are very reductive. I, the reason why I say like a poet painter is because I've always imagined when a, when a poet goes to write a poem, they're telling themselves to say less. They probably write something really extensive and then they're constantly trimming it down, trimming it down just to the very basis, the very essence of what's needed to tell whatever story or give whatever feeling. But, you know, these poets, I mean, they say so much in just very few words. So as a painter, I try to do that same thing. I try to, you know, talk about a starry night or, you know, give the romance of a river or a mountain and do it just so simply, just so reductive and through color, you know, it's, you have to be very specific about that. What blue is going to actually give this feeling of this cool night you know, what, what purpley sky is going to be the perfect purple to do the entire sky to talk about magic hour. Only one purple is that purple. You know, yeah. I could sit here and gradiate the entire sky and then give you all the light of the leaves. And you're going to go, Oh, that's magic hour. But how can I do one red on the trees and one purple on the sky and say all of that just with these yeah. two colors. And so yeah. I think that, you know, color is so powerful in that way, because for me, I don't want to over explain something. I just want to give it the the, the essence of what that feeling was. What's interesting, you made me think of the of uh, something that I like from school. The uh, I don't know if you've ever read. I think it's the uh, foreword was written for the Americans, the Robert Frank photography book. Uh, uh, okay, so Robert Frank is a Swiss immigrant during the uh, whatever like. 
he was in the in the fifties, whatever, when the America wasn't that great. You know, this, uh, this is all like very vague shit that I remember from college. But I mean, obviously he uh, he's either Swiss or Swedish. I can't remember. But <laughs> and people are cringing right now, and I love, and I'm just so leaning in and trolling them. But okay, so the 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 educated point that they will appreciate is that uh, so in the Americans, the foreword is written by Robert Frank, uh, or not by uh, by Jack Kerouac. Uh, and Jack Kerouac is talking about the book uh, and how and one of the things that he describes is how the the di- like all right it comes up a lot on the show photography is not a narrative form right because it it doesn't have a beginning middle and end so it seems like with parameters and uh uh clement greenberg would be very upset with you for doing this but with very specific parameters you're sort of approaching what he talks about in the foreword which is that photography is is it it hints at narrative and it's lyrical, but it's not narrative. And it, and, and so he likens it to poetry when you mm-hmm. keep mentioning, you may, you keep making that. You know, so I'm, I'm actually going to encourage you to read it. I'll see if I can find it for you and yeah. forward it to you because, <laughs> because, because it's, it's actually really interesting and it's written by a very important, it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, very yeah. important writer that, uh, I have my thoughts on. <laughs> I do, I do yeah. agree with what's his name. The, the true crime writer, the, the, uh, he uh that's not typing it or no that's not writing it's typing <laughs> what's yeah. the guy the fucking guy that uh whatever i tangent dead I can't help you here i'm terrible with names oh uh but you know who i'm talking about right the yes. the guy who wrote in cold blood or some shit like that is a true crime writer there's movies about him uh anyway he was a southern guy um the point being that like Photography is lyrical, and it sounds like you're you're trying you you're narrowing down through decision making process, right, and and through your own interests mm-hmm. to parameters that essentially make you work in this space where you are suggesting at narrative without actually being directly explicit about it and that can be i mean if photography is powerful for that reason that also can be very a a very useful tool you know like if you're talking about the psychological impact of something like that right so that's that's really interesting um i still don't remember the guy's name but go ahead and i'm always i mean my the scenes that i choose are always you know they're very idealistic Mm-hmm. Most of the scenes that I paint now have no reference photo. Um, yeah. They are, I mean, I, I take a ton of photos and, you know, I, so growing up, um, I didn't have the childhood home, but I did have the, this one place I went to every summer, Lake Almanor in California. Um, we went there since I was two, probably. Um, and now as, as an adult, we still go every other year. So it's Northern California. It's around Lake Tahoe, Reno area. Um, and that's where my mom's in California. (laughs) I'm in LA. I'm in Southern California. (laughs) I was like, lakes. That's like, like, you gotta go North. Um, so anyway, you know, when I first started painting, so my undergraduate or my, my graduate program, when I, um, for my thesis, I painted 
um, all interior spaces. I painted every bed I'd ever slept in. So my entire thesis was every bed I'd ever slept in, every childhood home. I wrote the whole thing on the idea of the childhood home. I wrote, I read the Gaston Bachelard, um, Poetics of Space. And, you know, it just changed the way that I viewed home and, you know, how it affects, especially because I was entering into motherhood. I was pregnant my senior year of my graduate um, program. And uh, so I was entering into becoming a mother and, you know, I mean, I'm hesitant to say, you know, I, I love both my parents. We have a great relationship. They are divorced. They divorced as when I was an adult. Um, but, you know, I don't have that, like that magical childhood. I'm not sure anyone does, you know, but Mine I didn't have the magical, not to be contrarian, but <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> He's like, he can point to the house that like, you know, he, every milestone he ever experienced happened in that backyard. You know, and it's like he has, yeah. So and you're just I know, like, I, you know, I, I'm jealous of that too. I'm jealous. <laughs> I have a little bit more like you, but like, I could never say like I lived in Rome, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. You lived in Rome, so 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 I that's what I'm saying. I'm saying I cannot. I can't, I can't relate to that jealousy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, but I just think that, I mean, I've, I've got high standards. I think from a very young child, I was a huge romantic, you know, and no, I was no. such a good reader. And it's like, I don't, I didn't, the reason why I don't know all the movies and all that is because I was a kid with my nose in books and I but was that, reading. But that's what's books. fascinating about where you're from. Cause you brought up the term simulacra, but like, that's mm-hmm. literally where some of those cities are, right? There's very like, you know, Nashville is also a very important town for in terms mm-hmm. of music and in terms of like just instrument sales and, and all of that. Like it, 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 it you can't deny there, that is like where a lot of session musicians still live. So like it is a hub of musicians that make a living from their talent. So, so there, there, there are these like performer elements in all these places, right? Uh, so, so it's interesting, and, but I think that like there is its own it, like it's almost like it's its own American experience. Like I can I can see where the romance comes from in your work, yeah. right? Like it's not it, it, it um it's not like what's it called Norman Rockwell, but it, yeah. it it's it's almost like yeah. contemporary it's capitalist. <laughs> I mean, but honestly, it's like, I'm more inspired by like, you know, when you go to a national park and they give you the tour maps that like, basically they take every element of what you're going to see in that park and they put it on this tiny map. They've got the moose and the bear and, you know, they've got the half dome and they've got, you know, they've got everything. Like a Disney map. Like yes, it's a Disney map. (laughs) I I try to like take all of that, like, look how exciting you might see all these things. And I put it in a painting. And it's nice. like, look, it's the sun and the stars and the and the rainbow. And also there's some mountains, there's a river, and it's so serene. And, you know, <laughs> it's like all of, they jam-pack all of the nostalgia into one little painting. Yeah, but I think that, that you're making it sound more kitsch than it is. You know, like... Oh, my like, God. No, it's, it's romantic. It's, it's, yeah. it's not... It's not, uh, it's not it's making it... But that's but that's what I'm what I'm what I'm inspired by is like no no no, no. I told I I just want to clarify for people that 
haven't seen the work that are listening to this. They're not right? going to go to my website and be like, where's the glitter? Where's the gold? Yeah, yeah. no, no. <laughs> well, that, that's also because I have, I, I, I talk to people that do that and, and I, and that stuff is, is equally as interesting, but mm-hmm. I do think like this, I mean, essentially all these conversations about painting that are contemporary, they are very much about decisions that are personal Right. And so I want people to understand what we're talking about, that, like, even though we're making these kitschy references, it's more like I would say it's more like the experience of the actual simulacra where it's unsettling and weird rather than rather than uh, than like cartoonish on a map. Right. And that's and that's. I get that a lot from people. They'll say it's beautiful, but it's also ominous. There's something really lonely about the work or. And having grown up in places like Reno and Vegas, I can totally like I did the uh, the let's do acid in in, in Vegas. And it was dark. (laughs) It was not fucking it was not uh, what's uh, Hunter S. Thompson's Vegas. It was. Then again, I also did Special K there, and it was and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I went to my first prom I did in Vegas because I lived in Vegas twice. I lived there for um, kindergarten and first grade. Your and then first I'm, prom, right? <laughs> so tell me, tell me, tell me how that was. It ju- it registered late, but good. LSD in kindergarten. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, no. How a prom? How was prom? So there was like. Well, actually, it was, it was so funny because, you know, like my husband's prom is very small town. You know, it's like they ate at like, like, you know, the what's what's that red corral or whatever. What Golden corral? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I've never been there. He has, you know, they eat somewhere like that. Then they, you know, buy off the rack and they go to prom. I <laughs> went to Blue Man Group <laughs> and ate at some steakhouse in Bellagio and then went to my prom. And that was like a norm. That's what, that's what kids did. They went to we a stayed, show. <laughs> we stayed at the fountain blue <laughs> in Miami. <laughs> so same yeah. shit. It's like, it's like, it's regional. Like what's the kid, what's the thing, bro? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, well, go back to what your experience, but go, <laughs> so well, my, you, I mean, my educational background, it's like, I went from private to public to Christian school to public to private. And it was like, my parents just couldn't make up their mind. It was like, depending on what city we lived in, they were like, we'll give public a try. They sent me to public in Vegas. Um, I think they gave me nine weeks and they ripped me out and sent me to a Lutheran school. They were like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> I- <laughs> in my imagination, I'm picturing two mob bosses go- from Kansas City going, Hey, how, I, I'm trying to remember uh, Joe Pesci's accent in in uh, Casino. Is like, hey, <laughs> what's up with her? <laughs> how are we gonna fix this? I know. Well, the funny thing was, is I had met this really nice guy, um, and it was Sadie Hawkins. Do you have that? It's where the girl asked the guy. No, explain it again. Sorry, in case I stepped over you. Sadie Hawkins is just where the girl asked the guy. The, so it's it's backwards you know it's like that was back when like social norms were like still like this is this is not gonna offend anyone so we're gonna have this happen so they had sadie hawkins where it's like it was a big deal because the guys asked the girls now it's a norm now girls can ask guys and it's not like oh the girl asked the guy but like when i was in high school they had to have a whole dance separate for it so that women could approach men <laughs> can i push back on that because yeah. if i because i was a very shy boy 
And if I was still that shy boy, I, I know it doesn't present that way anymore. <laughs> but in high school, <laughs> I was a very shy boy. And if I had been a girl and I could have uh, lived off of that norm, that was literally the only way I had any romantic entanglements <laughs> is like aggressive girls. So I need aggressive girls. <laughs> no, I mean, I was, I was all up. I mean, but even back then, I think I felt like this is weird that we have an entire separate dance where girls ask guys, because I just, anytime I went to a dance, it was like, a, it was a conversation, you know, I never yeah. got like composed to, you know, it was like, you had a conversation about it. You both consented to doing this thing and you went. So composed is a new term, isn't it? That didn't exist when you were younger. Uh, no, but modern family. Just <laughs> had a lot of late nights. So I'm watching modern family. <laughs> No, I mean I recognize Prompose. I like that 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 registers as a uh, a, a a post internet you but know. But I was in school. But I'm hit. I'm a hit mom. All, all of our our generation needs to just like band together kind of like Wall Street bets and just troll everyone troll the whole internet with like uh you know I, I was going to say BRB but that's actually stood the test of time. <laughs> yeah. G2G has not. What's G2G? Got to go. That is the hashtag right there. You nailed it. G2G. <laughs> <laughs> and it was yeah. right there. Wow. You that was like God, yeah. that was good. That was really good. All right. So Do anyways, we have anything that so go ahead, go ahead. So Sadie Hawkins. So my parents sent me. So I, I came from New Orleans to Las Vegas. Okay. And I, are you familiar with a with a country day school? No. They're like they're like Pleasantville's. They're like Vanderbilt campuses and you eat at like tables with linens. And okay. so it's more simulacra. There's no religious affiliation to it. It's just a, like a very like fancy private school. So when, when we moved to New Orleans, my dad was like, if we're going to take this job, I'm New Orleans was in a like not a great place at that time. And so he didn't want to send a private to, to public school where we would have to live. So he said, want to send a private school. So this, the, his business paid, his business paid for us to go to a private school. So we went to the so school. So this was, was during Katrina or no, you're old, too old this for that. Right before Katrina. Okay. Actually, um, I think Katrina happened. Wait, 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 wait. New Orleans was fucked up before Katrina. Holy shit! Uh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, New Orleans was awesome. I still love the city. Uh, no, but you know so what I, I mean. Like, it was school. not yeah. socially just. Yeah. <laughs> so my parents moved me to Vegas from there. Wow. So I go, and they're like, we're going to put you in public school now because it's all good. And so I get into public school, and it's like, it is just like culture shock for me to go. Because it's a, it, the public school I went to was called Bonanza. It was... Yeah. I want to say there was like 500 people in my class. I was coming from like a 70 person class to a five. And I was going into my freshman year of high school. Mm. So it was like, I was, so it was a huge transition. So, you know, I meet some friends and I met this guy and I asked Miss Sadie Hawkins and I call my sister at college and I'm like, <laughs> he has a baby. What is wrong with <laughs> Like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh girl, you he's not mature. <laughs> <laughs> I 
gosh, I know. And I all and I was like so innocent. My sister's like, Do you know how he got that baby? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. He's gonna and, get you pregnant. <laughs> so she called my parents. My parents were like, What? So my dad told me that he's like, Is there anything I should know about this boy? And I'm like, he's really nice. And he's like, I'm like he's a cheerleader. He's like, anything else? I'm like, can't think of anything. Wait, hold he, on. This is post George W. Bush, right? was oh i'm during this was during george w bush yeah it should be yeah the, the president cheerleader that we had yeah yeah well i mean no one cared that he was a cheerleader i i was a cheerleader so no one cared that was fine <laughs> yeah no but there's a sociopathic thing to guys that are cheerleaders i agree agree actually you know but i was actually i i was get, about to get ready to get canceled but i'm glad that we're both going to get canceled <laughs> any but okay any male cheerleader that is not gay <laughs> is a yeah, fucking creep great male cheerleaders yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys you're on something so anyway um that was a thursday when my dad found out i was in a lutheran private school by a monday I was, and then I met his cousin and I dated him instead. Was he uh, pregnant? (laughs) Did he get anyone pregnant? No. He's still a really nice guy. Oh, cool. Good job, cousin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that the person that in this group with. (laughs) Wait, sorry, say that again? That's who I went to prom with. That's who I went and saw Blue Man group with. The cousin or the or the guy that the cousin, the cousin. The cousin. Okay. I got pulled I got pulled from the public straight All to right. the private. I'm glad that it ended that way because I was about to say like somehow the good guy ended up in the context of the bad guy. <laughs> like he was the cousin of the asshole. And I'm like, let's give him some credit, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He saw the blue man group. That must have been cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. Well, honestly, I feel like I took all that for granted because with with my dad being in casinos, you know, Cirque du Soleil, all of like the Bellagio shows. I mean, that was something we would just, if we went to see dad, that's what we went to go do was to go see the shows. And the same thing in Nashville. When we moved to Nashville, he took over the um, Opryland Hotel, which was over the Ryman and the Wild Horse Saloon. So, you know, I was 16, 17, 18 backstage at the Ryman seeing some of the biggest shows you know, that the Ryman has had and that the Grand Old Opry has had just because I was there with my dad. So I feel like I grew up and then was like, man, why did I take my Harry Potter book to that? Like, I definitely should have been listening. (laughs) But at the time, you couldn't convince me to put down Harry Potter. So I didn't. But that, okay, I'm sorry. But that is so, like, that's beautiful. You're like the angsty, angsty teenager rebelling against your parents, like, bullshit world i mean we can get into we can get into a conversation about how uh (laughs) that book is neoliberal like propaganda (laughs) yeah it is it really is (laughs) but i also okay so going back to my uh my bougie childhood uh, Mm -hmm. i went i did go to a british school when i was in italy i went to saint george's english school in rome we were all Children of diplomats. We all had British accents. My mom was a Cuban. Where's yours? Huh? Where's oh, yours? I, 
I moved to Miami, so I try to get rid of it as fast as possible. I was like, uh, this is not popular here. No one's ever going to fuck me. <laughs> That's so, like, anti, because you would think it would definitely work Yeah, for I just moved to the worst place to have a British accent. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did not say bro enough. And, uh, and now I say it inadequate in, enough time, but I don't have a yeah. British accent. So I don't yeah. get na- I, It's like a perpetual striking out. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, no, I get laid plenty, girls. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Girls. <laughs> Just don't worry about me. Like, I'm talking to. <laughs> I, su- I suddenly became an old woman. Uh, all right. So, 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 um, bougie school. What was I going to say? Oh, so yeah. So the school. We had prefix. I was. We had four four schools. It was uh, Byron, Livingston, Drake, and Newton. Newton would be the Hufflepuff. The Hufflepuffs uh, are the worst. Yeah, they're the they were the nerds, and and, and then the uh, so the other the like literally it's 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 kind of like neoliberal bullshit because it's like they put all the nerds together marginalize them their house always loses its sports and then byron byron drake and livingston kind of uh, flesh it out (laughs) for a while and so so go back to our topic color what color would you think newton is which one is newton is the hufflepuff they're the yellow Nice. So it holds up. So it may be, it may just be a British cultural thing because it was a British school. <laughs> and okay, so then, uh, then Livingston was green, Byron was uh, red, and Drake was blue. And so all, Byron was really the most athletic, the red one, and then uh, Livingston was sort of like on the creative tip. Drake was athletic and creative. I started off in Livingston because my brother in, in the green Livingston because my brother was Livingston. But then once my brother graduated, they switched me and my, all my friends to Drake. And like, like, dude, this was like life politics. And these are the people that, you know, like you ended up talking to all the fucking time. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we used to have cross country. We used to have like intramural uh, competitions. It was a fucking big school. And and so was this an all boys school? No, no, no. This was this one. Dude, you want to know how, like how much I don't relate to you being like, no one has a had a, a ideal childhood. My childhood was better than my adulthood by like a long <laughs> shot. <laughs> I want to go back. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I've said this before on the show. I used to fantasize about my school being a boarding school. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. <laughs> But anyway, so yeah. You do not relate to Harry Potter living in a closet. No, I related to it a whole that, that's my point. I grew up in this whole like it was uh it you know, it was like my dad worked for the UN, so it was like I knew people whose parents worked for EFAD, I knew who people whose parents worked for who, which is the World Health Organization. Like mm-hmm. those were my friends, and then it was like mostly them and then like all the Italian kids who whose parents wanted them to learn how to speak English. And be international. Mm-hmm. And and then that campus, so that campus was huge. It had an Olympic-sized swimming pool. It was in uh, Via Cassia. Uh, and then <clears throat> I left the school, 
And it it was like massive. It had this fucking like it was amazing. I could go on. It had like several soccer fields. It had you know like it was like a fucking um, Roman Colosseum <laughs> or you know like <laughs> like the way that you would imagine. <laughs> no 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 it didn't murder. So, uh, what, <laughs> the way that you would imagine the way that you imagine Roman sports in an amphitheater it was like that like they had like it was all shirtless it's all shirtless right yeah just I mean we were nude people. we were like little boys just hanging out <laughs> with our dicks out <laughs> gosh <laughs> no no <laughs> I mean this was when I was a kid so what else would it be but <laughs> but uh, so um, so then I met my friend up a while later, and it turns out that there was this huge fucking scandal, and the school got split in half. They had to sell half of it because the place where I went to school that was all new, like for the new ki- for the young kids, they had the old part and then the new part that they just built. They were running some like Italian mafia scam where they were buying duplicate parts of everything so that they could write it off and like the whole co- the whole school collapsed it was like it was like the most neoliberal neoliberal bullshit <laughs> 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 the fantasy ended up in reality and so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but sorry for that long rant <laughs> no, I love that you use the word bougie because like I unapologetically use it too because there's you get to a point where it's like, I don't want to come across as, as like a spoiled person. So like, or like, you know, like flaunt my privilege, but there is, you know, you should acknowledge the fact if you come from a history, from a background like that. And for me, I come from a very privileged background. You know, the way I live now, like I, my husband was an elementary school teacher when I met him and we married and now he works with farmers and I'm an artist. So, you know, we're obviously not like rolling in the dough, But, you know, I was raised in a very affluent lifestyle because my dad was in casinos and hotels. My mom didn't work. And, you know, they still live those lifestyles. But um, when I talk about my childhood, it's like, you know, someone said to me recently, it was something to do with like cleaning or implementing chores or something. And I was like, I was raised with maids. Mm. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Took me a while to figure out, like, I feel like I came in at like, it was, it was hard for me to become like a mother who had to clean up after everybody. Cause I was like, Holy shit. Like this is a full-time job. And you're like, it was a full-time job. Yeah. It is a full-time job to keep a house, to take care of everything. Yeah. But to be fair to you and to my parents, cause like, and, and this is an interesting thing about just general economics, because I think that in the, the, the kind of impulse right now is to just sort of shame anybody that had any good luck growing oh, up yeah. mm-hmm. and you're not born into it right um the thing that can be learned about both of the facts that we had privileged lives livelihoods lifestyles and we ended up not being as well off as our parents right like and the mm-hmm. whole thing for immigrants in my parents case is that they wanted a better life for their children um yeah not accounting for my siblings who are doing much better than me, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, 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 but there's something to be said about the fact that there is no, it, like, I don't know about how long casinos have been around in a legitimate sense, but like the idea of like generational wealth, like, you know, like 
there are some people that li- love to be like, especially to me, like, it's like, yeah, but you're not that white. And I'm like, yeah, I understand that. I am like racially white, but my parents are Cuban immigrants. M- the country that I live in has had an embargo on my family's country. I don't know. There's like a disruption there, but like economically, which is the di- dialogue that I think is helpful. is like mm-hmm. there is generational wealth that even as white people, you and I do not have access to on the same level. So we did grow up in privilege and it, it serves to acknowledge that. But <clears throat> there is sort of this thing of that is interesting to sort of consider where it's like labor is slowly getting less and less valued. And, and power is more and more concentrated. And so who survives that? Definitely not you and I. Right. Yeah. And so that is a caution. Like that is a, a, a an interesting yeah. sort of like thing to include in the whole conversation about privilege, because it is like my parents worked their asses off and they had education. And when it came time for me to go to school, they're like, yeah, an education will solve everything. My siblings, though they're doing better than me, they are in insane amounts of debt. I am not doing as well as them because I did not get into that much debt, right? Yeah. And so there's something to be said about that, right? And yeah. It, yeah. It's funny that you bring up generational wealth because, um, you know, monetarily, no. Uh, but I will say that if I was not raised in the family I was with the privileges that were afforded to me, for me, college was not a question of if I'll go, it's where I'll go. And then it was yeah. paid for. Now, my graduate school, my dad said, I'll pay for your undergraduate. I won't pay for graduate. And I ended up getting tuition scholarships and a stipend that covered everything. I came out of graduate school having made money. I didn't yeah. have to do anything, which was great. I don't know that I could have done it any other way. But I'll also say I never would have gone into the arts had I been raised in a family that told me you have to make a, you know, money, money is the main thing. Uh, You know, my dad pushed, be happy, find your passion, you know, which I think there is, you know, there's greatness in that. Um, I think that I will probably tone it back a little bit for my kids, because if I could go back and redo things, I would have added something, you know, extra to my, my degree, I have been extremely, and I, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, discount my hard work or, you know, how strong my work is, but I have been very lucky to mm-hmm. find the galleries. I mean, I live in a, in a log cabin on 11 acres in the middle of nowhere. The town I live in is less than a thousand people. <clears throat> to be a contemporary artist that has any sort of reputation in this kind of a setting is pretty unheard of. And so I, you know, I mean, t- typically, you know, you need to live in New York, you live, live in LA or Chicago or, you know, London, somewhere where you have access to big galleries. For me, you know, the galleries I work with, I'm represented with from a gallery in Nashville and Milwaukee and in Denver cities mm-hmm. that, you know, Nashville and Denver, I have ties to that, but they, they didn't happen because of those ties. It's just the way, you know, the cards fell. But I, you know, I do feel very lucky that I'm actually thriving in this because I know that the majority of people I went to school with are not thriving as artists. They're having to find secondary employment. You know, I do adjunct, but I make more from my painting cells than I do from adjuncting. I adjunct because I truly enjoy teaching and I would love to get into teaching actual studio classes. 
Yeah. All, all that to say that while I didn't, you know, um, inherit, you know, great wealth as, you know, or a business or anything like that, um, I don't think this is the route I would have taken if I wasn't raised the way I was. Uh, 100%. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah there, there just would have been more push but, towards find an actual career. But, the, but that that goes back to sort of the talk about how, like, you know, like our parents didn't know the world that we were going to be living in, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so the world, like, the world according to how they grew up, they knew artists that were – that had like my parents were like holy shit this guy you dude you'll be fine you just get an art degree you'll have three months off it's amazing (laughs) and you can just work all the fucking time you know like so so it is it's like it 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 it, it, you you're 100 percent. like i think that our our parents generation maybe had that like success and they were like oh we've made it (laughs) and it's like and it's like no you didn't (laughs) all your kids are gonna have to pay twice as much as you did to get anywhere near having the kids that they do right the distribution of wealth among generations it's like like two to six percent it's i mean it's a pretty big variable but it's like boomers hold everything and then, like, after, we got nothing. <laughs> yeah, so it was like, I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting conversation. And, and, I, and I appreciate you, you acknowledging the good fortune you've had. But why aren't there more opportunities to make more money when you go to school? That's, that's a unique thing that happens in the U.S. There's a lot of bland art coming out of... Austria, I've seen it. They show it here in LA. <laughs> I I've met the artists. They're dicks. <laughs> Honestly, I will tell you. You know, like art school is great for generating a community for um, you know uh, giving you a place to have really good you know conversation. But I still don't think you can teach good art. And no. if you are teaching good art, you're teaching derivative art. Art school. I mean, I, while, while I think that it's valuable, um, I don't think that it make it makes or breaks whether or not someone is a good artist. Now, you know, there's galleries that, you know, really do look like, do you have a pedigree? You know, did you go to RISD? Did you go to SAIC? You know, did you go to these big schools that, you know, immediately when you graduate, you have a label of I'm a good artist because I went to the school. You know, I, I think that honestly, social media has been the biggest place where it is basically taken down all those gatekeepers. It doesn't matter if a gallery head or a museum head says you're good anymore, because if you blow up on Instagram and have enough followers and people who say, I love this work, who are you going to listen to the audience or the person who runs the, you know, the facility. And so, you know, I think we're in a whole new area of art, which is, you know, for me, social media, that's been the big thing is that that's been the only platform I've had to put my work out because I don't, live near a city and 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 going back to you are you you acknowledging your good fortune like you were probably somewhat of an early adopter to be in the position that you are to be making you know like you 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 uh uh, you said you didn't want to discount your work i want to acknowledge it right like because that i mean as someone who is actively promoting a podcast regularly Mm -hmm. like you know um 
it is uh it's not an easy thing to sort like it's not an easy thing to nav- navigate you can't go to your uh, parents who gave you your good opportunities and ask them for feedback on this you have to work with your peers you have to stay active so that mm-hmm. shit takes a lot of work but but anyway i i'm really enjoying this conversation i don't want to keep like uh keep keep going back and forth on 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 generational wealth and all of that because i don't feel like that was like the main source of what we were talking about yeah, generational wealth <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no 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 like i think that i think i think that we just kind of hit a uh, acknowledging our privilege spiral because we were just talking about how fucking privileged we are but <laughs> you, you know like and and there's guilt involved in that i you know but i i do think that it's i do think that you know like um i don't think that working in casinos should be any less stigmatized than like being Hunter Biden, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So so yeah, you've been privileged, but your parents worked hard in an industry that was probably very fucking competitive with very high from nothing. My dad moved out to Vegas from Michigan with $200 in his pocket and put himself through University of Nevada, Reno in a finance degree, working as a um, blackjack dealer at Harris. And then 20 years later, he was the CEO of Harris. And so he wasn't born and he's one of five kids. You know, his dad made $12,000 a year. They, he, he really did. I mean, and he did it with a wife and a two-year-old that he adopted. And look at you now social media self-starter so like you know what i'm saying like you know like you didn't inherit your social media shit like you know so i know there's like a a pressure to sort of acknowledge things but like yeah you fucking you're 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 you're, no it's an important there's so much conversation centered about race in this in this country like you 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 know you inherited yeah you had nannies okay and, and 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 that and they helped you with your arts and crafts. So your art education, your painting education started earlier than you acknowledged. <laughs> no, but I, but I but I think that I think look, I think it's healthy to have a sincere conversation. We are we like I think it would be hokey for us to be like every fucking phrase we said was like, yeah, but I would never know what it's like to be a black woman, you know, like. I would never know what it's like to be a tra- like that's so performative. Like we yeah. are two people having a public conversation about our experiences, and there's stuff to be learned from that, right? And and um, it's not invalid just because it's not as marginalized as other experiences. And there's not and and there's nothing and and it's not less constructive in the broader economic discussion to acknowledge that like our parents did well for themselves. My parents were Cuban refugees. They did have privileges compared to Mexican refugees or anybody else from the Latin American descent. However, our families have been decimated, right? And so, yeah, the reality is that my, my siblings were able to get help to get to go to school. I've gotten help from my parents, like into adulthood, like legit, you know, I would not be able to do this fucking podcast if I had not had all of those privileges growing up and, and, you know, like during COVID and all of that. Right. Like 
I have a support system. I didn't fucking when when I didn't have uh, unemployment insurance that I paid into. I didn't eat a complete fucking dick because I had family that taught me how to invest or and all of that. Like there's all of those little things, and yes, they deserve to be acknowledged. But ultimately, there is a cutoff point. We were we grew up in what was used to be considered the middle class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't exist anymore. And it's important to talk about that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, I think this is a very valid conversation and I think that your experiences are very valid and I really appreciate, like, I feel like we had such a wild time early on in this conversation. We were all giggly. We ended up in this really serious place. Where we wanted to talk about this stuff, but uh-huh. it's been very intimate and very fruitful. And I really appreciate you, you know, yeah. like sharing all of this stuff, like, like th- we are of a very particular generation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I was actually listening to one of your other podcasts where you were talking about, I think you were talking to Kale and asking yes. about millennials. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like, cause I actually don't know where I land in it. Um, what year were you born? I'll tell you. Yes. What's that? 86. So you're a millennial. But I don't feel like that's fair because I feel like there needs to be like Exennial. a split because I was as a teenager, cell phones weren't a thing. And, you know, I got a Nokia when I was 16, but like my parents kept it in a drawer and it was like I got to take it when I went to friends houses. And it wasn't I mean, I, even graduating, graduating, I think my mom gave me her razor, like the razor yeah. had just come out and she like had she gave me her old one. And she got the new one. Yeah. I mean, like I, you know, up until 16, they, you know, there, there needs to be a, a pre-cell phone and a post-cell phone millennial because it is very unfair that it's all just smashed together. That, that, that's something that we've talked about since like almost like the third or fourth episode of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the, so, yeah, no. So the, so there is a generation that, or there is a, um, there's like a, a bracket that they've created called Xennial which tries to compensate for that. And I used to buy into that. But ultimately, I thought about the long, the long arc of history. Sorry, you have to say it like that when you say that. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought about that and I was like, yeah, man, there's people that have been through crazy changes before, you know, like and and like crazy, like, you know, like plagues and shit like that, which which we just went through. And like. Plague and a post plague. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, no, the generations that were just born before the plague, like, fuck them, you know? It's <laughs> the plague. <laughs> you were born in 2020? Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, your parents had that economic suffering, right? Like, pre yeah. <laughs> COVID and post COVID. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I think, that's, I think that's a valid thing to contemplate. But. I pose this to you. Our parents lived before plastic existed. What? No. A hundred percent. When was plastic? Think about the lunch boxes. I think it was 40 in the, in the forties, like plastic. Here, let's 59. How old are your parents? My parents are in their, I don't even know, because I don't count every year, you know, and I, and, and on purpose, because I don't want them to die. Uh, when was plastic invented? Well, our parents were both born in 1959. But, and I know but listen, so basically, if, if, uh, it, petrol 
you know, like was like petroleum and all those wars weren't really fought. And like the the Shah being put in place in Iran and all of that, it didn't really happen until the 50s right after World War Two. So plastic like World War Two, I would say plastic is definitely after that. If your parents, your parents were definitely not born before that. Mine were 100 percent born. Uh, wait, let me let me do a quick search. When acrylic paint was, was in the fifties, and acrylic is plastic. Okay, nineteen oh seven. But I'm talking about like you I, mean okay. like yes, like I know what you mean though, like petroleum-based plastic. Like I'm yeah. talking, you know, like our parents. Hold on, mass-produced plastic. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> Well, you look at modern art, 50s and 60s, and it's all plastic. It's Andy Warhol. It's silk screening. It's, you know, it's acrylic paint. Yeah, no, I'm talking about my parents' childhood. Gotcha. <laughs> so maybe in the U.S., <laughs> because of the war, there was no plastics. <laughs> and maybe in some obscure part of the world, there was yeah. some fucking asshole was like, I'm going to mass produce plastics. And then we bombed the shit out of them. And they were like, there was no plastic. There's no plastic. <laughs> but it, okay Bauhaus was very much about using plastics those those materials were somewhat uh, okay according to what I just saw in 1907 which was like when my my grandfather wasn't born until 1913 but dude we've been going for so long we gotta wrap this up <laughs> we can get into debate about but, but according to my tell me about him according to my mom Let's just end here. According to my mom, she did not have an experience of plastics when she was younger. And if you think about it, there weren't plastic lunchboxes until like 80s and 90s. There were plenty of metal lunchboxes. So even though mass plastic may have been mass produced, it wasn't necessarily a consumer oh, product. Produced, yeah, until it made it to a lunchbox, it doesn't count. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> because think about all the little fucking kitsch figurines that we have now. <laughs> and the Happy Meals, yeah. Look, I am the authority on everything. <laughs> and we should end there. Well, listen, I have I have two like coffin size bins of beanie babies in my basement. So <gasps> you need to listen to episode to the episode with what's her name? Um Oh my God, my boss is calling me. So this is just got to, we got to wrap it up right now. (laughs) Anyway, it's, I'm, I just got so distracted. You should listen to the episode called, uh, uh, when stuffed animals attack. It it is about, okay. That, 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 that that woman. Oh yeah. Yeah. That woman blew my mind, but you should definitely check that out. And then, uh, what can you promote for us? Danielle Winger at Danielle Winger on Danielle Winger art is just underscore art. Yeah. And by the way, just to show people how bad I am at names, I asked you before the episode and it wasn't just because Danielle was a word was a name. It was because I used to read your name as Danielle Wellinger <laughs> because when two, I'm super dyslexic, and when my two, le- my, my uh, maiden name is S E V I G N Y. I don't know. It's Sevigny, but it reads Sevigny. like Sevigny. Oh, okay. So I no. thought when I married a woman, I was like, you were safe for I mean, mispronunciations. 
No, but that's more I how has hair. <laughs> that has more to do with how I perceive letters and and turn them in. like there's uh, dyslexia is literally a uh, uh the, the people think it's they you read things backwards but it, it, uh, the word left and felt are not backwards they're just they just have the same letters so what ends up happening is you have a problem taking um taking visual information and converting it into phonetic information, right? So when I went to school, I learned the 44 sounds in the English language and the letter combinations that make it. So I, I learned oi, oo, with two o's, oi, oi, and all of that so that I could even fucking keep up. <laughs> oh, wow. And that was that was before I left my British school to go to an American school that was way subpar by my standards at the <laughs> <Way> time. <not. laughs> I know, anytime you meet an exchange from Germany, they're like you only have twelve grades, twelve grades, <laughs> and you're allowed to go to all of them. You don't even have to compete to get into the last one. <laughs> but anyway. So, all right. Uh, so, Danielle Winger and uh, uh, Danielle Winger Art, and anything else that people can check you out on? I'm in DanielleWinger.com. Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a fun time. I had a miserable day at work and I didn't expect to have a two hour interview. So this was fun. Uh, I'll definitely have you back on and to the listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good, uh, everything else.